let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you again with thankful hearts, for we know that you are the one that has changed us to where we desire to worship you in truth and spirit, that you were the one that sent your only begotten Son to lay down his life and pay the price that we could not pay for our sins, and that you are the one that sent your Son who lived the perfect life to earn us the righteousness that we could not earn. So we come before you, Father, to worship you for who you are and what you have accomplished for us. And we pray, Father, that our minds would continue to be fastened upon who you are and who your Son is and what he has done for us. And as we continue to think upon his greatness, that he is our Savior, that he is the Lord, that he is the one that we are to look to for all that we need, we pray, Father, that we would learn more of him this day. We thank you that he has not only lived a perfect life and died the death for us, but that he continues to intercede on our behalf even at this very moment there in heaven. We pray, Father, that we would learn learn more of who he is and what he would have us to do this day. We pray that your spirit would strengthen us and enable us to do his will. We pray, Father, that your spirit would come in power this day and work in our midst, both to save sinners and to sanctify your saints. We pray, Father, for those unable to be with us. You know their reasons and their needs. Pray that you might meet those needs so that they might return and be with us again. Pray that all that would be said and done this day would be pleasing in your sight and bring honor and glory to your name. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his sake. Amen. Turn with me again to Matthew chapter 7. We will read verses 28 and 29. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Matthew writes, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Believe it or not, we have come finally to the last two verses of the Sermon on the Mount, which are added by Matthew, the writer. Of course, he wrote it under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we see that he is telling us the response of the people, those who listen to him over the course of these three chapters. Now, it should always be the desire of a pastor for his sermon to have a positive impact upon his hearers. If my preaching doesn't have a spiritual impact upon you, then I have not accomplished what my desire is. It isn't my desire for you to say, Pastor, I enjoyed the sermon today. It was a really good one. You presented it very well. It's nice. And you even actually didn't mispronounce any words today. No, my desire is that you will be led to think, to meditate, to take in the Word of God, and that the Word of God will bring repentance, conviction, and that God's word will pierce your heart that you might be changed by God's grace and conform to the image of Christ. Even if I could impress you with my ability, I don't seek to do that. For I'm simply an ambassador of Christ, here to simply preach God's truth as faithful as I can, and I admit that sometimes it will offend you. 
I shared with some of you something that was sent to me by one of our members, what John MacArthur said. He said, people ask me through the years, do you worry about what people say? My answer to them is no. Why do I worry about what people think? There is only one person that I'm concerned about, and that is God. I never had a thought sitting in my study preparing, oh, I wonder, I don't want to say that, because that's going to make someone mad. People have written me notes and said, I brought my Catholic friend, and you offended him. He'll never come back. I brought my Mormon friend, you offended him. And I brought my wife, and you offended her. And I'm saying, do you want to paralyze me? Then I tell you, I have 3,000 people sitting in front of me, and my job is not only to offend any of them. No, I am here to offend all of you. So I guess I'm in good company when I do offend you. Of course, our task in offending you is to cause you to see what you need to do, spiritually speaking. And we see that Jesus' sermon, of course, often offended many, especially the religious leaders of his day. And we have to realize that what he preaches here in the Sermon on the Mount, in these three particular chapters that we have, was very effective. And we see that there were those who were affected in certain ways. And on this particular occasion, as those who heard the Sermon on the Mount, it says that they were astonished. But the question is, what did it lead them to do? We see that even though they were astonished, that we don't have any record of any repenting and confessing Christ. I don't know if you've had time to read the sermon by, or part of the sermon by A.W. Pink on the back of the order worship service, but I encourage you to do it. Not now, do it after church. But he speaks about that. I saw a title of a sermon by Jeff Pollard, who's pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church, or Bible Church, and it was the title, Astonished But Not Converted. See, if you think my purpose is only to astonish you, my purpose is only to amaze you, then you are dead wrong. That is not my purpose, and that was not Jesus' purpose. My purpose is to preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and that you need to look to Christ and that you need to repent of your sins and trust in him and him alone. My purpose is to preach the amazing grace of of God, that God is the one that is able to save sinners from their sins, to show you your need of Christ if you do not have Christ as Lord and Savior of life, your need to repent, your need to look to Him and Him alone and to live for Him. And that's what Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount. Now sometimes I wonder, what in the world do you hear me say? I know that unless your eyes and your ears are opened by the Holy Spirit, you cannot see and you cannot hear. So there, in one sense, I'm helpless. I can't do anything as far as your spiritual condition is concerned. I can't save you. I pray that the Spirit of God would save you. I pray that the Spirit of God would open your eyes. So I come to the pulpit every single Sunday knowing that I am helpless to change you. But yet at the same time, I know that the Spirit of God and the Word of God is able to change you. Now, of course, that also reveals to us the importance of prayer for us as Christians. We must pray for the Holy Spirit to move, to save. This morning, as I often do coming to church, my wife and I listened to Alistair Begg, and he's still preaching through the book of Jonah. But he got off on Jonah's prayer as he was there in the large fish and what he had to say. And he began to stress how important prayer is. He also preached a serious sermon. I haven't had the opportunity to listen to the two sermons. My wife sent them to me. Matter of fact, um, 
I think my wife has someone she enjoys listening to more than me. That's Joel. I mean, that's um, Beggs, Alistair Beggs. And I, and I don't blame her. I enjoy listening to him more than I listen to myself also. But anyway, uh, those are two sermons also that would be good to listen to. I sent the guys that are in our preaching class two sermons by him, uh, The Call to Ministry. Uh, he is, I guess you'd say, one of my mentors, just as John MacArthur is one of my minister, mentors and others that are mentors. We need them. We need to listen. I hope you listen to more sermons just than mine on Sunday morning. You need to be listening to sermons all week long. There's so many out there so available to you today to go to Sermon Audio and just, and just find a good sermon there, find a good preacher. Now, there are some bad ones, so make sure you find some good ones and listen to them. So we need to be feeding upon God's Word every day. Now, that which must be done, as I mentioned, is by the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that gives sight. He's the one that gives hearing. And He reveals to us what we need to know and what we need to do. I've said it before. One of the reasons that there's so few that are being converted today in the church is because the church in America is not the praying church that it once was. Until God's people, and when I say to God's people, I'm talking about us, until we get to the point that we see that we must spend time in prayer, both individually and corporately, we will not see the church revived. There's no doubt about that in my mind. Every single awakening has come when the church has faithfully prayed. So that's a challenge to us. What's sad today is that many think that they can manipulate the lost into making decisions. And some who sit here this morning, you were manipulated at one time and you made a decision and now you're in a worse condition than you were ever before. Why? Because you think you're saved. You were manipulated into making a decision. You never truly were converted. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you have made him twice as much the son of hell as he yourself. And what is he saying there? He's telling the Pharisees and the scribes, you've made a convert, but you have not led him to know Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And therefore, he's in a worse place than he was before because he thinks he's converted. Now, that may offend some of you. But I say it to wake you up to your lost condition. I'm saying it because one time I was in that condition. I had made a decision, but I was no longer, I was no more a converted person then Lazarus himself, or the rich man himself, we'll look at him in a little while. Or Nicodemus, he was religious, but lost. I don't want you to go through life thinking that you're saved because you've made a decision. I want you to know that you are saved because what God has done in your life, that He has changed you, made you a new creation, given you a new heart, that you have been saved by grace. Now, as we continue to finish up the Sermon on the Mount, you say we're at the last two verses, so we're finished with it. No, I'm not saying we're finished with it. I don't know how many weeks we'll spend on these last two verses. However, the Lord leads me into that. But we see here that Jesus had no halo of glory over his head as he preached a sermon. He appeared as a mere man. He was not dressed up like a religious leader of his day, nor did he carry any kind of religious symbols or theological books with him. And throughout his sermon, he said to the people what? You have heard that it was said of old, but I say to you. So what was he doing? Well, he was correcting what they had been taught, the religious leaders of his day. And he spoke with authority and majesty, and he denounced the Pharisees as hypocrites. We saw it in chapter 
verses 23, I mean 21 through 23, when he spoke there, saying to them, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And he continues to speak of that. And we see what he is doing. He is pointing out, you've heard these things, but I'm going to tell you the truth of these things, that it's a heart issue. That's what he's pointing out. And then he continues to where we saw later in the sermon that he tells them, those who were empty professors, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, why did they practice lawlessness? Well, they practiced lawlessness because their heart had not been changed. They didn't understand these things that Jesus was teaching there in the very first chapter concerning the Beatitudes and that it had to be a heart change so that they could be able to produce that which was right. Now, there were those who thought to themselves, who is this man? Who does he think he is? He is saying that we must stand before him on judgment day. You see that? I mean, Jesus tells them that he will say, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So there had to be some in that particular crowd that put two and two together and realized that he was saying, you're going to stand before me on judgment day. Now, if he was saying, you're going to stand before me on judgment day, what was he saying? He was saying he was God, that they will have to stand before him. And he told them that their eternal destiny would be regulated by how they applied what he taught. Remember how much time we spent, I think we spent two or three sermons on just that simpler phrase, these sayings of mine. So he was telling them that these sayings of mine is the very word of God, because I am God. And if you don't apply these very words of God to your life, you will stand before me and I will tell you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now there had to be some in that crowd that was able to do that, to put two and two together. And they realized that Jesus was saying that he was divine. That he was not merely a man, but he was the God-man. Now, of course, the religious leaders might have been spiritually blind, but I don't think they were ignorant. And some in that particular crowd knew what Jesus was saying. And they may even brought it up when the trial came up. There may have been some there who said, yes, I was there in the northwest shore of the Galilee, and I heard him preach this sermon, that sermon that they called the Sermon on the Mount. And let me tell you what he said. He said that he thinks he is God. He said that we will have to stand before him on Judgment Day. He said that we must obey these things that he said. Probably somebody said that at his trial. See, we see that there were those who had different impressions of him in this sermon. And there must have been some who believed. They were amazed by how Jesus was a religious teacher, different from the religious teachers of his day. And they were amazed, the scripture tells us. And there may have been the word of God planted in their heart. I believe there probably was some there in that crowd to where the word of God eventually brought forth fruit. They were, they were like pilgrim and pilgrim's progress. It was put in their heart and then eventually the burden rolled away. So we see that there can be different impressions from those who hear the preaching of the word. And some are amazed in various ways for various reasons. And every pastor experiences something like that every time he gets up and preach. Today, 
That will be the same task. There will be various responses to what is preached. Now, there are two truths that I want us to see this morning. First, we see that some were amazed at his doctrine, his, his teaching. And second, they were amazed that he taught the doctrine as one who had authority. So first, they were amazed at his doctrine. Verse 28 tells us there. Now, I can't help but think of something that happened about close to 40 years ago. I can't remember. Time flies when you get old. But anyway, I remember a lady. We were, I was associate pastor, and we were looking at uh, getting a new pastor. And the previous pastor that we had was very doctrinal and sound. And she said, well, we don't need to get a pastor that's always talking about doctrine. We just want one that teaches the Bible. <laughs> you know, some people can really show their ignorance. And, of course, that particular lady did. And I wanted to respond back, but I just did not respond back. I just let it lie. I mean, here we have Jesus' teachings, his doctrine, and the people are amazed. I mean, if you had heard Jesus preach his sermon, you would have been able to tell that he was not your typical guy in that day, that he was not the typical Ph.D. teacher. He didn't have the polished, refined vocabulary that the Pharisees and the scribes had. He, he didn't quote from the past rabbis of his day and prior day. And there were even those in the crowd that knew what he had done the first 30 years of his life, that he was a carpenter. And they knew that he had not been educated by the scholars in their day. They knew that he didn't have a Ph.D. degree from the University of Jerusalem. I mean, this is one reason why they were so amazed at what he said, what he taught. I mean, think back to what Jesus had taught them. The truth he taught them was revolutionary in one sense, even though it came from the Old Testament that they had. Now, remember, children, they didn't have the complete Bible. All they had was the Old Testament in that day. The New Testament had not been written yet. And we see that the scholars of that day were blind to the Old Testament. I mean, they were just like Nicodemus. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? You're a teacher of Israel, and you do not know, you do not understand these things that I'm teaching you. What was Jesus teaching Nicodemus? He was teaching him about the new birth. And Nicodemus did not understand about being born again. He didn't understand about being converted. Of course, that was not only Nicodemus, it was the religious leaders of Jesus' day. I mean, remember the religious leaders had always been telling the Jews what they needed to do. Now, what were those things based upon? Well, what they needed to do was based upon their 613 laws that they had developed from the Ten Commandments. And they had pressed these upon the people. What they were saying, look, if you will keep what we tell you to keep, the 16, uh, uh, 613 laws, keep these and live was their motto. That's what they were telling the people. But they failed to teach the people the important lesson that what they must be was the important thing. That they must be born again first and foremost. And unless they are born again, they cannot keep the law of God, and they will not see the kingdom of God. So they must be born again. They must become a new creature in Christ. They must be a new man. And that was the foundation of Christ's entire sermon that he gives to them. And he begins where? He begins with the Beatitudes at the very beginning. And he taught that it didn't matter what you did if you did not have this foundation, the foundation of a new heart. And if you have a new nature, then you are what? 
Well, if you have a new nature, then you are poor in spirit. You are comforted, meek. You shall inherit the kingdom of earth. You shall hunger and thirst after righteousness. Have mercy on others. You are pure in heart. You are a peacemaker and even willing to be persecuted for righteous sake. That's what Jesus was saying. Only when you have a new heart are you able to do these things. And these Beatitudes were an astonishing revelation to those Jews who heard Jesus preach and teach them. They never heard anyone teach them like this. So they're astonished. Now some may ask, why should we practice the Sermon on the Mount? And heed this terrible warning that Jesus gives. Why should we believe that unless we are conformed to His pattern, we are without hope? Why should we believe that? Why? Because who it was who spoke these things. The one who delivered the Word of God to them. This is the vital issue at hand. These words are not the words of a mere man, but they are the words of God Himself, which leads us to our second point, which is we see Jesus taught with authority. So again, I ask the question, why should we heed this sermon? Why should we put it into practice? Why should we believe this which Jesus says is the most vital thing for our life? Well, the answer is because the person who preached it, if we have doubt about this person who preached it, that will definitely affect our view of this sermon, will it not? I mean, if we question him and doubt him, it will have a negative influence on our view of the sermon. And that's why it had such a negative influence on the religious leaders of that day. They doubted him. They didn't believe that he was the Son of God. They didn't believe that he was divine. See, if we are in doubt about his uniqueness, his deity, the fact that this was God in flesh speaking, then our entire attitude toward this sermon is undermined. Do you understand what I'm saying here? If it's a mere man, then you what? You can receive it or reject it, right? I mean, you hear people speaking all the time. You're on social media and somebody will make a statement. You can either accept the statement or you can reject the statement unless that statement that he makes is the Word of God, of course. So it's just a mere person making a statement. You say, well, I disagree with that. I don't agree with what you're saying because it's a mere man saying it. So if you believe that the one who spoke these words was simply a mere human being and these ideas are only his ideas, then you can take them or reject them. Now, our Old Testament reading this morning was the Ten Commandments. How does it begin? A lot of people say, well, the, old, the Ten Commandments is what? The Mosaic Law. It is Mosaic Law. But they are insinuating what? These are the words of Moses. So therefore, if they're the words of Moses, you can what? You can accept them or you can reject them. Well, look again with me at the Ten Commandments. And this is what I'll often remind people who have that mindset. And I'll ask, I'll say, well, would you read verse 1 for me? It says, and God spoke all these words saying. Um, I don't think it's simply the words of Moses. Matter of fact, we see quite clearly that these are the very words of God. And he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So we clearly see that it was God who was speaking. Now, did these words have an impact on those there at that particular time? Well, I think 
They did. Um, jump over to verse 18, which was read. It says, Now all the people witnessing the thundering and the lightning flashing and the sound of the trumpet of the mountain smokes, and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Why did they tremble and stand afar off? Well, all we have to do is continue to read. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us. Who were they wanting to speak? They were wanting Moses to speak. They didn't want to hear God speak. How do we know that? Because they say, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. Isn't that interesting? How fearful they were to hear God himself speak. Because they realized that death, that God is the one that controls life and death. And of course, Moses helps them understand when he said, do not fear for God has come to test you and that your fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off. They still wouldn't come close. But Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. So we see how they understood how holy God was. We see it also in Isaiah. Remember when Isaiah was in the temple and God revealed himself to Isaiah and Isaiah saw himself as he was, a sinner, and he cried out and he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. Literally, I'm coming apart at the seams. See, when you see God and you see the holiness of God, you can't help but see yourself and how unholy you are. And that's what was happening there with the Israelites also there in Egypt. They were seeing how unholy they were when they were confronted with the holiness of God and the holiness of His Word. See, if you believe that man who spoke these words was none other than the only begotten Son, then they will have a very significant and attic authority and effect upon your life. For you see that these words were taught by Christ and must be implemented and must be obeyed. They are not to be taken lightly. You aren't allowed to ignore them. Now, there's those that try to ignore them, but you're not allowed to ignore them. One day, he will use the very words of Christ to judge you. And you may say, well, I didn't hear him say, well, it's your fault that you ignored him. That's what he would say. They were preached, they were taught, and you ignored them. So if you ignore them, there will be serious consequences for the word of God is true. They came from God Himself, and therefore they must be obeyed. There's no exception. And the ultimate authority behind every word in the Sermon on the Mount is to be found as truth. That Jesus Christ is God, and His words are the very words of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, When we read it, therefore and are tempted perhaps to argue against it or to explain certain things away, we must remember that we are considering the words of the Son of God. The authority and the sanctions are derived from the speaker, from the blessed person himself. And we must keep that in mind. That the authority is derived from the speaker, the blessed person himself. And remember his words there in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy them but to fulfill them. And then he adds to that in verse 18. For surely I say to you, till heaven and, come, uh, heaven and earth passes every away, every, uh, one jot or one tittle 
will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. So we see teaching God's truth is of utmost importance. And we must obey it. He makes it clear that it wasn't simply good advice. It's not simply good counsel. But it was the king of righteousness speaking to these people. And we see that the crowd was amazed both at the matter and the manner in which he taught. And they should have been amazed. For he spoke with such majesty and glory and sincerity which was never ever heard before until he came. And they were filled with temporary astonishment. Yet as I've already mentioned, it doesn't say that they repented or believed on him or that they became his disciples and followed him. Now there are those here today who may admire the matchless wisdom of this sermon, who may admire the words that Christ spoke, marveling at how truthful these words are. And you may even tremble at what he said concerning the final judgment. And you may be like the officers who were sent by the religious leaders to arrest Jesus right before his crucifixion. But they returned to the religious leaders. And remember what they said when they were asked why they didn't arrest Jesus and bring Jesus to them? They said, never has a man spoke like this man. They didn't rest Jesus. But neither did they bow down and worship Jesus and follow him. So in other words, you can be amazed, you can be astonished at what Jesus did and what Jesus has said and still never surrender to him. Do you see that the people can follow his teachings even? But yet that's as far as it goes. In other words, what must happen? For those who truly hear Christ's words, for those who truly hear it by given the hearing by the Spirit and their eyes to see, they will fall at His feet and worship Him. Perceiving that He is more than a man, that He is God Himself who is to be worshipped. So those who hear in this particular setting were not convicted nor converted by his teachings. They didn't see their sinfulness. They didn't see their need of a Savior. Seeing how far short they had fallen from God's standard. Now what we see here is just how depraved man is. The depravity of man, which a lot of people today completely dismiss. But as I often tell people, if you don't believe in depravity, spend some time in the nursery. You'll see depravity. And as they get older, you see it even more so. As Pink says, what is man even when he hears the truth from the lips of truth incarnate. I mean, they heard the truth and they heard it from truth incarnate and they still did not repent and believe. 
as I was writing this, think about this, I wrote, why should I be surprised that Sunday after Sunday I preach God's word, that some here leave no different than when they entered, when those who heard Jesus were amazed and not converted. So why am I surprised? I mean, when the multitude hears Jesus and they don't respond, why would I be surprised when you hear Jesus and you don't respond? I mean, when you hear me and you don't respond. See, we see that man is incapable of perceiving God's truth rightly unless the Spirit of God drives it into his heart. drives it into that stubborn, hard, wicked heart. Otherwise, it falls on deaf ears. How true it is that unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do we really believe that? I hope so. See, not even when the king of kings has proclaimed the truth do they believe. Look with me to Luke chapter 16. Jesus gives us the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I said that earlier in the sermon that I'd get to it, so I've got to it now. And we see in that story, after the conversation begins, that eventually the rich man says, Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him, speaking of uh, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify them, lest they come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear. In other words, what is he saying? Let them hear the word of God. And the rich man responded in what way? He says, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. That was his mindset. If you'll send someone from the dead, then they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they do not hear the word of God that's preached, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. See, one has risen from the dead. And even in that day when he had risen from the dead, what did the religious leaders do? They said, we've got to shut this lie up. We've got to make them think that this is a lie. We got to shut these apostles up. Let's deal with them. Did they repent and believe? No, they knew that he had risen from the dead and they did not repent and believe. So why am I surprised when I sit here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and preach the gospel and call you to repentance and to believe in Jesus Christ, you don't believe either. How true it is that unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So don't be surprised when a person only experiences a temporary effect which does not produce a holy life of obedience. But let us praise God if the message has pierced your heart and changed you. Now, I wish I could stand here and I could say that only a few times have I seen people get all excited, make a decision, and then fall away. I wish, I wish that was the case, that only a few. But that's not the case in my 40-some-odd years of being in the ministry. That's something that happens quite often. That's one reason why I told Dirk that as they get ready to have the crusade in Brandon, that I want as many of our members as possible to be counselors. 
Because I want us to make sure, if we're counselors, that we can make sure that when someone comes forward, and they'll have people come forward, that they understand the gospel. That they understand that making a decision does not save them. That they understand that unless God has changed their heart, unless they have been born again, that they are not saved. I don't want this crusade to take place and for us to be like Pharisees and scribes and travel over land and sea to make converts and we make them twice the son of hell. We have a responsibility to teach and preach the true gospel. So I want as many as possible to be involved in this so that we can do whatever we can to make sure that there's not false decisions made. Now, how do we know that this happens often? Well, Jesus gave us another parable that teaches us that in Mark chapter 4. Many years ago, I taught through the parable of the sower a number of weeks. Might be good to revisit that because I think probably 80% of the people here were not here when we went through the parable of the sower. But in the parable of the sower, as he teaches the parable of sowers, afterwards he meets with the disciples And he says, beginning there in verse 13 to the disciples, do you not understand this parable? See, the disciples didn't even understand it. How then will you understand all the parables? If you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand any of the parables? Is what Jesus says. The sower, so he tells them what it is, the sower sows the word. And these who are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. And when they heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word from the soul, soul, was sown in the heart. So in other words, that happens every time the word of God is preached. This morning, some of you will have the word of God snatched away from you immediately. Satan does that. He'll snatch it away. He'll tell you not to think about it. It'll be dismissed from your mind. You won't meditate on it anymore after you leave this place. Then he goes on and says what? These are like the ones sown by the stony ground, who when they heard the word, immediately received it with gladness, and they had no root in them, and so endured only for a time. Afterwards, when persecution, I mean, tribulation and persecution arises from the word's sake, immediately they stumble. So there's the second group of people. The second group of people make a decision. They look really good. They get baptized. They look like they're great. And what happens? Persecution and tribulation rises and what? They stumble. They leave. They no longer believe. Then he goes on, he said, now there are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So we see the third group of people. They too make a decision. Those too baptized. They're joined the church. They give evidence in some ways of being a Christian. But then what happens? Then the thorns, as he says, choke it out. What are those thorns? Riches, desires of things for this world. And they are unfruitful. Notice there's only one group of people And he says, but these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Some 30, some 60, and some 100. So what do we see? That the only ones that are truly converted are those who what? Bring forth fruit. Bring forth fruit in their life. My question in closing is this question. Which soil are you? If you are not bringing forth fruit, then the scripture says, not Thomas Wynn, but the scripture Jesus said, if you're not bringing forth fruit, 30-fold, 60 
hundred, then what? Then you're not a child of God. My question is, which soil are you? And are you bringing forth fruit? Let's pray. Father, I know that this sermon is a hard sermon. That there are those that sit here this morning who have been offended by it. Father, I pray that your spirit would work in our midst to open eyes, to unstop ears, in the lives of those who are unconverted so that they might see, so that they might hear, so that they might truly be born again, so that they might see the kingdom of God. And Father, I pray that we who are Christians would not take these things lightly, that we would not assume, even assuming those in our own family, that because they have made a decision that they are Christians, but Father, that we might be faithful to point out these truths to them and pray that the Spirit might give them eyes to see so that they too might repent. Cause us, Father, to see the seriousness of these words which Christ preached. And we pray, Father, that we would be faithful to pray, to pray for the salvation of the lost, that they might come to Christ, and that you might be glorified in their salvation. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake.